Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. There's going to be a heartache tonight, and in about an hour when this podcast ends, I have to wait another week for a new one. I'll be heartbroken again. I want to thank my friends in the Eagles for writing that song about their favorite podcast so long ago. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling, everyone. My name is John McAdam. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps, indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast. It is the Major League of Professional Wrestling Podcast. Before we get rolling, once again, I want to encourage everyone to join our Facebook group. Look, if you enjoy the podcast, you will enjoy the group. Give it a shot. If it sucks, quit. Hey, that's all you got to do. Also, follow me on Twitter if you're so inclined. Uh, I don't always stick to wrestling on Twitter, but usually I do. Just search for John McAdam. Follow the guys with uh, Moondog Maine and Don Morocco fighting with chairs. With that, I am excited to get to part two of my 1980 year-end awards conversation with Jamie Ward. I hope you like listening to it as much as we liked recording it and preparing for it. Here we go. 1980 feud of the year. I mean, Jamie, I think this is going to be a battle for second place. What did you have for feud of the year? All right. Well, I've dug up not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, six big feuds of 1980. Uh, it was a good year for feuds. Yeah, I, I think we, we both know what number one was. Uh, I mean, it's so obvious. Yeah, it, but we, we can you could tackle that a little bit later. I'm going to go with number six, one that most people probably aren't that familiar with. But I remember seeing this on um, some Southwest tapes that I had gotten in the early 80s and going back and doing my research. Tully Blanchard versus, versus Wahoo McDaniel was an entire year feud wow. in San Antonio where they traded back the Southwest title four times between themselves over the course of a year. They were the only two guys to hold the Southwest title in 1980. Now, 1980 is when Tully first turned either 79 or 80. He did his first heel turn. Uh, right, because he turns he, in 79, and then 80 is his big run. Yeah, he I th- I think he had been in heel outside of San Antonio, but you know now not too many promoters uh, push their sons as heels. But I mean, let's face it, Tully was a natural. Plus, it, was it eighty or eighty one that Tully and um, Mike Graham have the feud back and forth? Uh, I think it was eighty one. Okay, they, they traveled back and forth between Florida and San Antonio. Uh huh. My number five which all led to that last tangle in Tampa, Dusty Rhodes and Harley Race. That was it. You know what? Uh, join our Facebook group because I have a newspaper clipping from the from the last tangle in Tampa. I will post that where the, the writer just basically rips up Dusty Rhodes and, and the way Dusty pushes himself. But oh, yeah, really? I mean, it, was, it was yeah, it was interesting because coming in, the stipulation was that if Dusty Rhodes did not win the NWA title, he would never wrestle for the belt again, which obviously he did. And I was getting, like you, I was getting Florida wrestling on TV, 
And I was like, okay, this means Dusty's winning the belt. And I was very surprised when they aired the footage and, the, you know, the five minutes with Fritz von Eric as, as the referee. And it went to the time limit draw. And after the match, Dusty's like, well, that's it. I'm not wrestling for the title again. Yeah, and that, that was also the kind of the beginning of the shine coming off of Dusty ever so slightly. Because within, what, how many months later, him and Racers are wrestling again. And, you know, if you paid, right? They didn't keep up with the stipulation again. Then we didn't really think about it, but now that we've watched wrestling for forty years, we know this is a common occurrence. Yes, but back then it's like, oh, what, what's up with this? They ran an, an, an angle in the After magazines. They did one of these. It was, I mean, the After magazines were fun, but sometimes they were kind of silly. They had this, uh, it, was, it was a feature in Inside Wrestling called One on One, and the two wrestlers would have a video call, and they ran one a few months after the last tangle in Tampa, where Harley Race is begging Dusty Rhodes to please wrestle me again, because otherwise, being NWA champion is not as prestigious when I'm not wrestling Dusty Rhodes. And I was, I'm like, oh my god. That sounds like something Dusty would have written himself. <laughs> he might have suggested it. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, if you bought a ticket, last Tangle in Tampa, this is it. This is the last Dusty Rhodes versus Harley Race match. And then, I don't know, eight months later, you're watching TBS and you see that Dusty's won the title from Harley Race. Yep. And, and you know, once at the Wrestler Magazine, one of the coolest pictures that I remember, besides all the blood ones, is from that show. I think Dusty has a headlock on. Harley, but you see the grass all over Harley's body, blades of grass. <laughs> that always leaped out at me. You know, it, it's weird. I mean, I, I understand why you want to, obviously, why you want to run a show at a stadium because more people, more money. But at the same time, especially in Florida, there, there's always the threat of rain. Hello, uh, Harley Race against superstar Billy Graham. Exactly. And it's it's you know you're not going to fill it up and then you have people saying okay why should i buy tickets in advance you know i'll just see how i'm feeling about it the day of the show yeah and then you've got to count on the walk up it didn't make sense it did i mean you know i, I guess you can dream a dream that you're going to get sixty thousand people in there but chances are it's not going to happen anyway my number five was bob backland versus ken patera and I mean, talk about three phenomenal matches at Madison Square Garden, which we all have access to. And Patera was a really believable guy. It was the WWF champion against the Intercontinental champion, at least for some of those. And I, I really enjoyed that series. Yeah, it was a very good series. Who's your number four? My number four. We're going back to the Pacific Northwest. Oh, Rick I know Mar what's coming. Rick Martell, Buddy Rose. Martell, wow, I thought we were going to hear Piper, but Rick Martell was really good in Portland. Well, I, I did consider Martell Piper against the Kiwi Sheep Herders. That was a and, good feud, and the Sheep yeah, Herders both I, lost their hair. I, I, yeah, I, I did consider that one, because that, that was actually the feud where Piper bust the uh, beer bottle over his head. That was crazy. And yes. If you want to look for that on YouTube, Piper did it twice, okay? He did it in Portland, and he did it in Vancouver. You want to see the Vancouver one, because Piper absolutely puts a divot in his head, and there's blood all over the place. Oh, yeah. He, he like, hit an artery on that one. It looked like it. My number four was Ric Flair versus Greg Valentine. 
these two had been, I mean, they, they had been together. They had been a team. They, it was more than that. It was almost like this was the first incarnation of the horsemen or them being a unit. These two, you know, they were almost the same guy. When you saw one, you saw the other. Valentine goes to the WWF in 1979. Ric Flair turns babyface while he's gone. And Valentine, his old pal, you think he's going to help him out against the Iron Sheik and Jimmy Snuka. And Greg Valentine puts a dagger in Ric Flair's back. And Rick does one of the best interviews he's ever done when, I mean, they legitimately broke his nose with Gene Anderson's cane and Rick's out there with, you know, tape all over his face. He's got the raccoon eyes and he's talking about, you know, they're showing the angle and Rick's just, you know, you could tell he was really, or he, he, it felt like he was really angry. You know, Greg Valentine, his former best friend. And he's like, look at them. They're laughing at me as they're doing this. And it, uh, check it out on YouTube, or if I remember, I will put it up on the Facebook page. Yeah, that was a very impactful angle with Valentine turning. Because I remember you know, when I start, first started reading the magazines, Valentine and Flair, they were the cool heels. Yes. And they were inseparable. And and I guess, you know, the tighter you are, the more money you're going to make when you split. Yeah, it was almost—it was almost like seeing the Valiant brothers split up, which obviously they never did. But we, we, Valentine and Flair were, were a unit, just like that. Yes, they were. All right. What's your number three? My number three was basically from early 1980. Even though it, they probably they repeated it in '81, they repeated it in '82, maybe even a little '83. Mister Wrestling Two and the Mass Superstar. Great feud out, out of Georgia, I believe. Wrestling 2 brings Tim Woods back to help him in that feud with he did. Superstar in, in the beginning of the year. And there was those great, even though they're not color pictures, the, the black and white pictures of Tube's uh, mess just covered in blood. And that time Mass Superstar uh, unmasked wrestling, Mr. Wrestling 2 on Georgia television. And 2 was lucky enough to go under the ring before anyone could see what he looked like. Right, and then they end up, uh, guys run out with a towel and put the towel around his head, and then they uh, caught him out. I always loved Mass Superstar because he was a cerebral heel. He felt no need to go out there and yell. He just said what he had to say. He was nasty as could be, and he, he didn't care if he mowed you, mowed you over, if you stood between him and what he wanted. Yeah, he, he was a scary dude. I mean, very similar to the assassin in those regards but the assassin was known to go off oh no the assassin great interview and yeah he was known to go off i I like your number three my number three was andre the giant against hulk hogan uh a feud big enough so that they brought it to the superdome they brought it to the omni they may have brought it other places outside the northeast but for me after watching wrestling for almost five years and andre the giant was undefeated Andre finally was going to wrestle someone who was going to challenge him. And they, you know, I'm not sure how many people in the audience have seen it, but they get the, this natural feud, like this thing, you know, I was saying they should do Andre Hogan, even, even though I didn't know what I was talking about. And all of a sudden one day, like they're on TV and Vince McMahon says, all right, you know, watch this footage of Andre, the giant challenging Hulk Hogan or no, the, it was the other way around. They called him out. And then they went straight to the match. Like, I would think, okay, you'd, you'd wait a week to build this up, and they didn't, and they did the thing. It, it, it didn't make a lot of sense, but 
I mean, it, the feud absolutely drew. I mean, Hogan loaded up his elbow pad and, you know, clotheslined Andre. Andre's on the floor bleeding, and Hogan just walks out and try, instead of trying to pin him. You remember this, Jamie? Yeah, I, I remember it very well because I think they taped this angle and showed it in New York and then used it over again in other markets. Like it didn't air in the other markets at the same time it aired for New York because I ended up seeing this angle for Philadelphia for their match later on. And they said, let's, let's uh, go back and show you something that occurred recently. They, and they showed, they showed that angle, but yeah, no, I remember that angle very well. They did the exact same thing in Boston. Uh, I can't remember the exact length of time, but I was like, okay, I saw this on WOR like two or three months ago. Yes. But anyway, you, and you know what? I mean, Wrestling promotions like should have, I don't know, picked up on this that look, you know, the world is changing thanks to cable and we've got to, you know, tie it up a little bit better, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, especially in the WWF where, you know, they had their WOR, which is a week or two weeks in your case with Boston ahead of everybody else. You also had the whole Philadelphia area getting to see the Spectrum shows and now the MSG shows are starting to air on the USA network, even though it was in its infancy. And I think USA only operated from 6 p.m. till midnight every day, kind of like Nickelodeon did back in the day. It was only on in the evening. And But you were expanding your audience, and I think they should have tucked things in a little bit neater. You know, it's funny you mentioned that ESPN used to be like that. ESPN yes. used to start at 6 o'clock. Right, and you'd have you'd have Sports Center followed by Australian Rules Football, <laughs> and then back to Sports Center. <laughs> they would show anything they could, and not to get off subject, but I mean, I remember in 1990 having my mind blown that they were going to be showing Major League Baseball games on this. You know, Rinky Dink, what I thought was a Rinky yeah. Dink little cable channel. Now they have everything. You have to have ESPN to watch the Rose Bowl, the Orange Bowl, etc. You know, USA Network actually in 19. 19- well, 81 started airing major league games every Thursday night. I remember that as they expanded before they started airing Southwest championship wrestling. Yeah, I remember that. And I also, again, remember being taken aback by it because I thought, you know, baseball's too major league for this, for this channel. Yeah. The infancy of cable television. <laughs> and we're both <laughs> old enough to remember it. I mean, wow. It was, it was a trip. I mean, right. I remember when I was the remote control. No, I, my, my first one didn't have a remote. You had to get up and like, it was, it was this box that like had this, it wasn't even a knob. It was this thing that went pat, like sideways to change channels. Yeah. Well, I was my dad's remote control. <laughs> oh man. I mean, we went from having like four or five channels, I want to say to having like 40 overnight. It was crazy. Yeah, now it's, it's, there's a million, the billions of channels. Just go to yeah, YouTube. This- the world just changed for cable television. And, and those today are just walking right into it. But their cable TV is now streaming. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I got rid of cable. Well, I had direct TV. It got rid of them a long time ago. Just go to a streaming device like three years ago. I don't know. Yeah, I st- unfortunately, I still have cable. But <laughs> that, that's for another day. Uh, Jamie, I strongly recommend get a Roku and get YouTube TV. Strongly oh, yeah. recommend it. I have the streaming services. Actually, my daughter has a streaming service. It's a wink, wink. And uh, I just haven't been able to talk my wife into cutting the cord. 
I I could survive, but she has her certain um, shows ah, she likes yeah. to watch, and she likes her DVR. But eventually, I'm going to cut it, and just not quite there yet. <laughs> okay. All right, number two, Feud of the Year. I, I'm pretty sure you and I are going to have the same one, too. I come back on the Patera. Oh, wow. At, okay. As my, as my number two, because the back on Patera feud actually leads into one of my biggest personal moments ever as a fan in wrestling. You know, they started the feud in New York. I'm watching all that through WOR. And then after the MSG match, which is considered one of the top matches of Backlund's career against Patera. The feud switches over to the Spectrum, and they have a, uh, a two-match series. I, I believe the first one, Backlund gets counted out, and then the second match is Backlund Patera with Gorilla Monsoon as the referee. And it's another outstanding match. If anybody ever gets a chance to watch that one, it's not the level of Patera back on an MSG, but it's still a very good match, which ends when Patera hit Gorilla Monsoon with a microphone. Now, the part that leads into me is the next month at the Spectrum, the co-main event is Patera against Gorilla Monsoon, which I told my dad, I, w- I want to go see this. I've never seen wrestling live. So my dad, instead of going down to the Spectrum to buy tickets, knows a guy who knows a guy i'm sure we've all dealt with this stuff and you know whenever you know a guy it's not going to (laughs) happen but this guy knew a guy who knew gorilla monsoon and told gorilla monsoon about how what a big wrestling fan i was and he gave the guy the tickets to give to my dad so my dad could take me to my first show ever oh wow so you got your your tickets for the first show you ever saw well, indirectly, but you got them from Gorilla Monsoon. That's wild. Yes. And Gorilla passed the message through to me that he could have got me front row seats, but he got me what he considered was the best seats in the arena. And they ended up being the front row behind the penalty box at the Spectrum. You could see right over top of all the ringside seats, and you felt like you were ringside. You know what? I mean, wow. I mean, I have known for, I mean, I figured out like in the 80s that I I went to some indie show in Nashua in 1982, and I had ringside seats, and I was all excited. And that was the day I learned that ringside seats are not the best seats. The best seats are the ones that you just described. Yes. If you sit the first couple rows, you're okay. Um, I also sat at a show that somebody gave me tickets. John Stud Bob back on a couple years later, or John Stud Andre cage match, and we were in the 20th row. Forget it, you couldn't see. My dad and I ended up going back up into the uh, the regular seat. There, there was some opening, so we went up there so well, we could I, see the match. The floor seats are horrible. I learned early that floor seats are absolutely horrible. I I don't know how anyone can experience floor seats and ever go back again. Yeah. It's just like um, when the end you've, you've been there, the, the old civic center in Philadelphia, my dad and I for first couple shows, we got either first or second row. And then we decided, you know what, why don't we move up to the, uh, the balcony, the balcony had an overhang that was almost like real close to the ring. It, it wasn't yep. your normal balcony because it was an older arena. It didn't progressively slant back. 
the, the balcony hung over. Yeah, it was like a pit. So it was close. Right. So we used to buy first row seats of the balcony, and they were the best seats in the um in the Civic Center, as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I mean, you can see everything. So if I recall correctly, Jamie, or if I have the correct match, there was a stipulation in that Ken Patera Gorilla Monsoon match. Yeah. Yes, there was. Monsoon, who wrote the uh, weekly article in the Philadelphia Journal, who the one time said Billy Graham was dead and never did retract it, even after he returned. Monsoon said that if he didn't beat Patera for the Intercontinental title, he would retire. And sure enough, I believe it was Brass Knucks knocked Monsoon out. One, two, three. And Monsoon actually retired. I did see a couple results after that. I guess he was basically fulfilling commitments storyline-wise. But yeah, that, that was a big night. It really was Monsoon's last match. Yeah, Monsoon, I know he wrestled Madison Square Garden in 81, subbing for Andre uh, right. after Andre broke his leg. Like, that's one example. But he was he was no longer a full-time. Or even, back then, by that point, he was, he was strictly part-time. And after that, he was just a fill-in. Right, but he was still important. I don't know how important he was up in Boston at that time, but they always billed him as being from Willingboro, New Jersey, which was right across the street, not far from where Dennis Carluzzo lived. So he was like the, the local hero. So Monsoon would appear quite often on the Spectrum shows, and usually in a higher spot. Yeah, oh, they, they always protected him. I mean, I'm yes, actually a little did. bit surprised that, that he got pinned on his way out. Now, did it specifically say, did he, did he have to beat Patera, or did he have to win the Intercontinental titles? I would have, I would have known he wasn't winning the title. And he just had, but no, he said he, he was... If he didn't beat Ken Patera, was his words. Okay. All right. Because, yeah, I, I, at that point, I'd be thinking, okay, well, we're about to see a DQ finish. But, no, he he was older by then, and he wanted out. And he did the Big John Stud Body Slam Challenge in 1983. But, I mean, for the most part, he was gone. Yeah, that that, that was the end of him, except for, the like you said, um, to come back to take Andre's place. And he was still writing that newspaper article at that time. And, like, can still see the the headline gorilla does a giant favor and he oh. talks about him stepping out of retirement for one match and one match only he told people don't get used to it it's only the only the one time and what, what was the time or well, madison when, square garden yeah for the madison square garden. okay because in his article monsoon wouldn't just talk about um philadelphia wrestling he he would talk about other things i've he did an article on terry funk once he talked about puerto rico wrestling uh, he would talk about other areas. Oh, I did not know that. Really, uh, uh, the only way I'm familiar with the article is the one where he claims superstar Billy Graham had died. And I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I mean, it, it, it's it's funny how rumors get going. I mean, then after that, and I, I've heard this personally, uh, Cal Rudman is doing the Spectrum show, giving the details of superstar Billy Graham's death. Like, oh, he was a toothpick at the end. He'd lost so much weight. I'm like, good God, <laughs> it's not even true. I don't remember that, but it I wouldn't surprise me because Cal just did what he was told. But if you were from Philadelphia, you actually enjoyed Cal Rudman and Dick Graham because they were your home announcers. Uh, I'm sure just like your home baseball announcers and, and stuff up in, in Boston, they were our home wrestling announcers. So. I, I kind of like those guys. Uh, the one thing I liked about Cal Rudman is, and, and to me, I think this is important. If you're, if you're doing anything on the camera, really maybe even anything in life, Cal Rudman was having the time of his life. You could tell he was just like, he wouldn't, he didn't want to be anywhere else. Oh no. And, and his interviews, he wouldn't just talk wrestling with the guys. 
I found out that Angelo Mosca went to the University of Notre Dame through an interview with Cal Rudman. Yeah, he would do the yeah. the um what are the intermission yeah. interviews with the right. spectrum. And and it'd be more of an up close and personal type thing. He he didn't talk to he, he talked on their level, not up to him or down to him. He he talked on their level. And most of the time it was pretty entertaining. Yeah, he did an interview with Hulk Hogan in 1980. So this is before Hulk Hogan was a huge star. Right. And Hogan like was out of his heel persona. He was just a dude talking about, I don't know, life with, with Cal Rudman. The, the only guy that ever, ever would stay in character was Captain Lou. That's because he, that's because that's who he was. <laughs> well, actually, that was him, wasn't it? <laughs> All right. I, I have the feeling I know who your what your number two feud's going to be. Oh, I'm sorry. Duh. I'll then let me give you my number two, the fabulous Freebirds against Junkyard Dog. Yeah, you, you can't argue with that. I mean, it, it was it was a fun feud to watch. Uh, someone was going to pull a gun on Michael Hayes at the downtown municipal auditorium. A great storyline. As we've you know, we've talked about this feud uh, during Paul this Orndorff's hair cream. You put that. You saw it. It was it was Paul Orndorff's hair cream. That he was using to get it, get back at Ken Mantell with. Yes. Just a, a line. You know, that's the thing. What was great about mid South. I mean, they told that not usually not overly complicated stories, but not overly simple stories either. Right. And you know, Ken Mantell starts cutting everyone's hair after he beats him on TV. Next thing you know, JYD is blinded by the free birds. <laughs> and, and it was a logical path to get there. Yes, it was. Watch was brilliant. Watts, and the best part, I've said this before, Watts had no previous pro wrestling knowledge or experience before he started wrestling, and he saw it for what he was, he got money out of it, and he got out of it. He was not emotionally attached, yet he wrote the best stories. Yeah, a 20-year run. That was no. n- Not many could beat that 20 years. Feud of the year. Could this be feud of the decade? Bruno Sammartino against Larry Zabisco. Yeah, that- I knew you were going to say that somehow. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> great minds think alike, Johnny. Um, it, it, it just was. I mean, it's almost beyond words just how great. If you didn't grow up in the Northeast, yes, you, you can't truly appreciate how great this was. Student first teacher. He, he wants to have a match on television with him so he can prove that he's not in Bruno's shadow. And then he just beats the hell out of him. And looking back, the most obvious play job I think I've ever seen outside of Captain Lou Albert. <laughs> you know, and it was it was a, a, a it was interesting what they did because they had Larry wrestle a squash, and then Bruno comes out to interview him, and Larry walks away, and Bruno's yes. like, "Oh, I guess he just didn't hear me." Then the next week, Larry comes out, he pours his heart out, he's like, "I need a match with Bruno San Martino. I need this." Bruno says no. So then Larry comes out the next week, wrestles a squash. Vince comes out to interview him and Larry's like, I hope you enjoyed that because that's my, that's the last match I will ever wrestle. There's no point in any of this. if Bruno won't, won't wrestle me. Bruno comes out. He's like, all right, we got to have some compromise. I'll wrestle you, but I'm not going to try to hurt you. I'm not going to put you in, 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 in a hold that will put you in an excruciating pain. The match starts and Bruno is just so dis- you know, better than Larry, obviously. And then Larry just snaps and hits him with the chair. And it goes beyond that because the, the interviews were phenomenal on both sides. 
It was realistic. Bruno would not talk during a Larry Zabisco match. He would just, um, I have nothing to say about this man. The matches were, were excellent. Great psychology in all of them. If it's not the, in the feud of the decade, it's, it's definitely in the argument. Absolutely. 100% the greatest feud of all time. My opinion. Definitely in the argument for that, too. All right. Tag team. Excuse me. Match of the year. Now, Jamie, I I should have given you a warning on this. I I forgot to. I I think we need to separate the categories here. We need to separate Wrestling Observer Match of the Year and Pro Wrestling Illustrated Match of the Year. What would you give Pro Wrestling Illustrated Match of the Year to? Let's return right back to it. Bruno Zabisco, Steel Cage. There's just, just, it's just an argument for number two at this point. I mean, that was clearly, you know, going from a PWI perspective and yeah, there were other good ones such as, you know, Dusty and race in Tampa, but this is clearly, I mean, the match of the year period. Yeah. I guess a close number two would have been Vern Gagne versus Nick Bachman. No, I can see that. I'm, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I mean, it, it took place I, I've never seen the park. Yeah, and, I mean, and, Vern won the title. Yeah, he did. But I've I've never seen the match. I was just trying to light you up a little bit, John. <laughs> I've never seen the match either, which kind of surprises me because I've seen, I mean, I had so many different copies of Vern's final match a year later against Nick Bockwinkle, but uh, I've never seen any footage of the 1980 show, and you would think Vern would be playing that on a loop on AWA Wrestling, but apparently not. Yeah, by the, exactly, because what was it? Um, 87 or 88, every single week he was showing an old match of himself. That's right. That was the back. This was like, I remember 88, 89. It was really the only reason to watch AWA wrestling at that point. AWA yeah. was like in the toilet. Yeah, to see some classics. Mm-hmm. That's why it would be on like Saturday night late. And I'd be like, all right, I'll do this. <laughs> anyway, now this will be, I, I'll bet this one is a landslide as well. Wrestling Observer using their rules, which match of the year, 1980. I'll just have to agree with Dave on this one. The uh, the back on the terror. I can't think of another one off the top of my head that was uh, yeah much better. I mean, I probably saw a better match at the Spectrum, but that one really did have a lasting effect on me because I, I saw that on tape about two years later uh, before I even had any knowledge of the Wrestling Observer, and I always enjoyed that match. It's my number one as well. Uh, once again, I, I guess the only argument is what's number two, because May 19th, 1980, Patera had just won the Intercontinental title, and they it, it was a Texas death match, even though the one thing I can say negatively about it, like they didn't wrestle it like a Texas death match. Like, okay, you know, there are no rules. I'm going to do whatever I want. It was, you know, pretty by the book match. But I mean, and I guess you had to have a Texas deck stipulation because it's a, the third time they've wrestled but other than that little nitpick i just did i mean it was a five-star match no questions asked one of the 10 best matches of the 80s in my opinion absolutely now do you have a number two my number two is going to surprise a lot of people no i i really don't have a number two john um i had just written down those two matches uh, i'm like i said, said before i'm sure there was other matches but just nothing you know pops out of my head for that year this one, and I'm going to say this was like tied for two and three. They're, they're, these two are tied for two and three. Bob Backlund and Hulk Hogan had two excellent matches in Philadelphia. 
And it just goes to show you earlier in his career when Hogan wanted to go, he could go. These were like literally four star matches, both of them. Oh, Have yeah. you seen them? Oh no, yeah. I, I saw them both live when they occurred. I I totally drew a blank on it. I can picture Backlund slamming uh, Hogan. And I believe in the second match, he got the pin on Hogan. That yep. first match, I think Backlund was counted out. Um, yeah, I think you're correct. on I know Hogan got pinned in the second match. And then he gets pinned in the second one. And in a rare thing at that time, Backlund extends his hand and Hogan shakes after the match. Yeah. You, and that you did not happen. You didn't see that in 1980. No. I mean, heels were... Well, then again, I, I just talked about Hogan going out of persona during the Rudman interview. But yeah, you you did not see that unless the guy was about to turn babyface, and Hogan was not. That was not planned for him. No, and then H- Hogan leaves and he comes back, but later in the year, when Hanson comes back, they come back together. Oh, uh, yeah, it was like Hogan really, it felt like he never left. It wasn't like, you know, returning to the WWF. I, no, I know he no. was gone to Japan for a while, but I, I kind of consider that I think November 79 is when he first got on TV and he left May 1981. And I consider that just one big run. Yeah, you're right. I mean, when he did come back, that's when he came back with the black armband and the trunks and the black trunks and the uh, Japanese symbol. And I can still picture Blassie Ichiban, Ichiban. (laughs) Uh, Man, Hulk Hogan and Stan Hansen earlier in their careers in the WWF at the same time. That was good times, man. All right, tag team of the year. I've got three, Jamie. How oh, many do you have? I, I can I can do three. I I have a bunch of names written down. I'll go with my number three because they had a pretty good hold going back to the Northwest again. And again, I got to see a lot of this stuff on tape. Back to the Kiwi sheep herders. Luke Williams and Butch Miller. Um, Boyd wasn't involved in this team of them. They feud with Piper and Martell. And then, who did they feud with later? Um, but they, they ended up holding the belt uh, several times. And they eventually, now they were on top against Roddy Piper and Rick Martell. That's one thing. And did, it was it 1980 that they that Buddy Rose turned on them? It might have been the end of 1980. Okay. It's, it was either 80 or 81. I, I can't remember. But, I mean, I know that thing always came full circle where Buddy Rose was the bad guy. And he'd have someone in his stable, and that guy just never looked at recent history that, hey, Buddy screws everyone at the end, and he screwed the sheep herders. Yes, yes, he did. My number three is, and this was a really good tag team year, if I'm putting the Samoans at number three, because they had a phenomenal run in the WWF starting in late 1979 and ending right around the end of 1980. Two runs with the tag team titles, the big match against Backlund and Morales at Chase Stadium. Just two huge guys that were that you were scared of. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I never found out the reason for was that quick switch to Morales and Backlund. I never understood that. To me, they were killer heels. And I never saw a purpose of why they switched the belts at one time over it, when they were just going to put the belts right back on them. No, it made no sense at the time. I was saying before the match, how can Bob Backlund be wrestling for the tag team titles when he is ineligible to hold them? And I figured, okay, we're going to have a DQ ending, and they didn't. Two straight falls. And it's not like they kept on television week after week after that saying how Pedro and Backlund beat the Samoans, thus elevating Pedro to that point 
when he eventually beats Kemba Terra. They just dropped it. But you're right. Uh, the Samoans are on my list. They're not in my top three, but they were in my list. All right. And, and you know, that, that tournament they had that made no sense. The whole scenario, I thought, devalued the WWF tag team titles. It made it look like, okay, you know, Backlund's the best, but he can't be the champion. And now we've got Rick Martell and Dominic DiNucci in the finals for, for, these, for these belts. Yeah. Not a good deal. I mean, Martell was great. Just DiNucci was way past his prime. Who yep. did you have for number two? Well, my number two was the up and coming. And the first time I'm going to mention the AWA, Jesse, the body Ventura and Adrian Adonis. I gave them strong consideration. They were an, an excellent team in your right up and coming. And they breathed some fresh life into the AWA, I thought. Oh, yeah. And they weren't managed by Heenan either. They were on their own. I think they started with Lord Alfred Hayes. But then when uh, Heenan um, came back and re- reclaimed the family, I don't think he took Adonis and Ventura under his wing. They were on their own. And then they ended up winning the tag team titles by the end of 1980. Yeah, they were an excellent team. I mean, I've said this before. You know, people say about Ventura and Adonis. Okay, Adonis does the work and Ventura does the talking. Adonis was an excellent talker, too. Can't say that about Jesse the body in the ring. But, I mean, yeah, like I said, they were they brought a little bit of new life to a perpetually stale, in my opinion, AWA. And I was so excited when they showed up. Was it 82? Into the uh, WWF. And fall they, 81. Uh, fall of 81. And then they split them. I'm like, oh, I can't believe it. Well, I mean, it almost further proves, not proves, but it exemplifies what I was saying that, you know, the WWF tag team titles just, you know, they were beneath the tag team of Adonis and Ventura. And I kind of knew it at the time. I, I can see why you, why you would say that. But still, I wanted to say it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just knew, like, you know, they were not winning the belts because they were above the belts. But my number two was the tag team, legendary tag team of Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. I keep saying, like, people are above tag team titles. The NWA was a completely different animal because Ricky Steamboat was one, one of the top guys in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. And he's one of the tag team champions, one of the greatest tag teams of all time. Oh, absolutely. And, okay, no, no no argument there at all. And then they split up and they come back a couple years later. Yeah, and that was and that was actually pretty cool because that normally didn't happen in wrestling, but they did it in 1983. I was I like that. Oh yeah. Actually, it was in '82. What am I talking about? Okay, who was your number one, Jamie? I have the feeling we have the same number one. Well, and I think we've mentioned these guys, or at least one of these guys, two or three times already. The fabulous Freebirds. That's the one. I mean, I'll, I'll say this too. If if you had told me on January 1st, 1980, that Buddy Roberts, who had pretty much phased out of the business, was going to be part of Tag Team of the Year, I would have been like, wait a minute, the Hollywood Blondes got back together? And no, this this revolutionary new tag team with two guys who I had never heard of on January 1st, 1980, Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy. And Bill Watts, according to Bill Watts, brought Buddy Roberts in because Michael Hayes was not much of a worker, which I mean, OK, I, I, I disagree with him. But go ahead. Yeah. But what was great about the Freebirds at that time when I'm watching them on the, the, the satellite program network was 
I guess I first started watching wrestling 74, 75, not hardcore watching it every week, but here and there. And there was a Sunday night that I caught Florida wrestling. And the team that stuck out to me, they, the only two wrestlers that really stuck out to me from that show were the Hollywood Blondes. And I couldn't believe that this was the same Buddy Roberts that I had seen a couple of years before as one of the Hollywood Blondes. I mean, I just, I guess the expression would be, I really marked out for it. <laughs> I mean, we both got Mid-South Wrestling on that satellite network where Michael Hayes got injured and Buddy Roberts was brought in as a Freebird. Now he's got Freebird gear and everything. You know, he was just a, a mid-card guy in Mid-South before that. I mean, talk about just getting the greatest break I can think of. Yeah, there, there can't be many that ever got luckier than uh, Buddy Roberts. <laughs> Robert Gibson, maybe. Well, uh, but... maybe Robert Gibson, but... Yeah, Buddy Maybe. Roberts, I mean, he, he just fell into the perfect gimmick. Yeah, I mean, he was just, just another guy in Mid-South Wrestling when that happened. And, and, and somehow for that entire Freebird run, you knew that Buddy was going to be ultimately be the guy that was going to do the job in whatever stipulation match. But you still respected Buddy, not like somebody teaming with S.D. Jones and Tony Atlas. You knew S.D. Jones was doing the job. But you didn't really respect S.D. Jones. I thought Atlas and Jones were winning the tag team titles. I, I really did. And I, I knew S.D. was kind of, you know, a job guy. But I thought Tony Atlas was enough of a superstar. We're OK. They're going to make this happen. I mean, it, it looked like they kind of dropped all the clues. They were going to win the tag team titles. So I, I, I don't know what happened. But yeah, de definitely the, the Freebirds were the tag team of the year. They, they dominate Mid-South in the beginning. And what is it? August, September? maybe October, they go on to Georgia mm -hmm. and the rest is history from there where with the national TV exposure from TBS, Freebirds are still known almost to the level of the road warriors by your non wrestling fans. Yeah. I mean, it, and it, you know, we are not to harp on buddy Roberts, but when Hayes turned babyface in 1981 to feud with Gordy, like Roberts just disappeared and he was in retirement uh, when Michael Hayes came up with the idea of doing the Von Erichs versus the Freebirds, or at least Michael Hayes says it was his idea, and I believe it. <laughs> and they needed the third guy, and Buddy was living in Oklahoma City. Yeah, called him up from the uh, off the bench. <laughs> Fortunate son, Buddy Roberts. Now, we're going to do our top five for wrestler of the year. Keeping this at five was very difficult for me because so many guys had big years. Jamie, do you have any honorable mentions outside of the top five? Well, my first honorable mention, you just got done mentioning him as, as part of a tag team, Jay Youngblood. Jay had that great run with Steamboat. And then the last two months of 1980, he is up in um, Northwest again. Somehow I keep going back to Northwest. And he teams with Joe Lightfoot, and they win the tag team titles a couple times. Yeah, and he eventually, I'm not sure if this was 1980, but he had the feud with Buddy Rose as every big baby face did in Portland. Yeah, I mean, I guess Jay, I could have gone all the way back to the underrated category. He really had a great year in yeah. 1980. You know, it's a shame because, um, you know, he had the Indian gimmick. Which, I mean, we were kind of at the end of the road with that, I think. And if Jay Youngblood, I think he would have had a bigger career had he wrestled as Jay Romero, the, you know, the Mexican-American. 
Yeah, probably. Here are my honorable mentions because these guys all had huge years. Uh, Ted DiBiase in Mid South Wrestling, you know, top babyface. Well, it, really on JYD's tier as top babyface. He was the North American champion. Roddy Piper had a giant year in Portland and by the end of the year had started in Mid Atlantic Wrestling. Dusty Rhodes, gotta mention him. Tommy Rich, gotta mention him. I mean, when Ric Flair is outside the top five, you know you had a lot of guys who had solid years. Yeah, actually, Flair appears in my top five. Okay, I mean, for, for me. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, not five. Exactly. So, Flair is my number five because that is the breakthrough, as we were talking about, of Ric Flair as the babyface and going on to that next level. And looking back at it now, you, you kind of know why a little over a year or so later, he's picked to be the man. Yeah, I have argued that Ric Flair getting the title in 1981 it was actually overdue. They could have put it, the title on him in 1979. But you know what? I mean, if you're going to be NWA champion, you have to be a babyface sometimes, too. So maybe this was just part of that whole preparation process. Right. This was his run as the face. Kind of like David Von Eric going to Florida as the heel. And yeah. he proved himself as a face after proving himself over and over again as a heel. And boom, a year later, history starts. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I mean, Flair, you know, he's my favorite wrestler in the world. He's, he's just, you know, was so talented. and It was so much fun seeing him blossom in the early 80s from, you know, local star to national superstar. My number five was Ric Flair's adversary, Greg Valentine. Greg was no longer the little brother after going to the WWF. He was no longer walking behind Ric Flair. He was the number one guy, number one heel in in the Mid-Atlantic area. He was the United States champion. Just another huge breakthrough for Greg Valentine. This is, you know, the year after, okay, I, I headlined Madison Square Garden. I had a great match against Bob Backlund. How can I top this? Well, here's how I topped it. And I wholeheartedly agree with this one because Valentine comes in at my number four. And along the same lines as Flair, even though he hasn't had his baby face run yet, I think this is where it takes Valentine to where he's knocking on the door of the NWA title. I mean, I have always said Greg Valentine could have been NWA or WWF champion. I thought he was going to win the WWF title. That's why. And that's, that's the. So did I. Okay. So, yeah, my number four was Bob Backlund, WWF champion the entire year, had some great matches, as we stated, against Patera, against Hogan. He had a really good match against Killer Khan. If you have those kind of credentials and you're only number four, that means some people have had some great years. Yep, I have back on it at uh, number three for myself. So okay. we're right, <laughs> we're right there with each other. We're synced up, man. My number three, I mean Harley Race. Aside from losing the title in a quickie in Japan, was NWA champion the entire year. Jamie, you earlier in, in our recording, you went over some of the uh, his accomplishments. I mean, he was all over the place defending in every single territory i mean it's the greatest spot in wrestling uh well it can be argued that wwf spot might be equal or better in terms of like money and travel but i mean harley race when when i always considered the nwa title to be the real world title above the awa or wwf 
champion, and that's what Harley Race was the entire year. Yeah, when when you look at like you just said with the NWA title, especially from I, I guess the last great year is eighty three, maybe eighty four. That that's the thing that was so awesome about it, going to each territory and seeing that result. NWA Heavyweight Champion, sixty minute draw with Bob Armstrong, loses by DQ to Bulldog Bob Brown, double disqualification against Playboy Buddy Rose. That's what made the NWA awesome. But seeing that stuff and knowing that this guy's actually traveling around the country defending the belt, where yes, Backlund is in the bigger cities, probably making a lot more uh, cash, but it, it's the respect thing uh, of just being everywhere. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And you know, I, I thought '85 was to me, I don't know, it was the last great year because you knew Florida was at least still around. World okay. class was still part of the NWA, but the best part was you would watch WTBS and they would talk about like, you know, okay, they'd show, bring in a, a tape of like Dick Murdoch or Butch Reed from Mid-South Wrestling talking about, hey, when Ric Flair comes here, he's got to get past me. They would talk about Barry Windham in Florida. They would mention the Von Erich. So I, I liked that. I know there were fewer territories by that point. But being on cable and having it all talked about, I thought was really cool. Yeah, that that was definitely a cool aspect of TBS. All right. So who was your number three? Or you just told me, Bob Backlund. Yeah, Backlund was my number three. All right. My number three was Harley Race. We just talked about that. Who was your number two? My number two, and I've said his name a couple times, and just going over, again, my stupid research, my number two for the year is Rick Martell. The, the oh, guy wow. Just, he just had the year. I mean, he had one, two, three, four, four tag team title reigns with Piper. Plus, he had three Northwest title reigns going back and forth with Buddy Rose. And then he wraps up the year going to the WWF, getting an instant push, and him and Gurria beat the Samoans for the tag team title. That's quite a year. It is, it is an excellent year. I mean, Rick, and on top of that, we all knew who the star of the Martel Gurria team was. It was a good team. Gurria wasn't that bad, but we all knew who the star was. Right. And it, it's a shame that Martel never, of course, he did later down the line. It's a shame that after they lost the belts to the Moondogs, that they didn't push Martel on his own harder than they did. You know what? I, I, I To this day, I, mean, I remember they were talking about a, a Rick Martel versus Don Morocco match hyping it up for Madison Square Garden. And I thought, you know, basically they just fed Martel to Morocco, who I get it. Martel was kind of on his way out. But I was I was a little bit disappointed when I first saw that match. Because I'm like, hey, you know, th- you need to treat Rick Martel a little bit better than this because he's that talented. Yeah, and he had a, I mean, we didn't know it at the time. But here, years later, you find out he already had the reputation of being in Canada and New Zealand and Australia. And Japan, there's a great match out there of Martel versus Harley Race. I believe it's from Australia. If you guys can find it on YouTube, it's well worth the watch. Definitely. I remember that match airing on WWF TV in 78, I want to say, kind of inexplicably. But that was my first look at both Rick Martel and Harley Race. Yeah, and it's an excellent match. So any of you want to take a time to watch it, it's well worth it. All right. My number two is Bruno Sammartino for reasons that we've gone over. I mean, he was the, the, the guy in that feud. It was really Bruno's last great run was against Larry Zabisco. And unless, you know, 
the Piper run was fun. The Savage run was fun. But this was really like, I thought, the last great run of Bruno Sammartino's career. And, you know, just, I mean, we've talked about before, what an unbelievable feud with Ari Zbysko. Yeah, he actually ends up that year with a quick feud at the Spectrum. I believe they had back-to-back matches with Ken Patera. I've seen those. And they were for great. So I cannot argue with Bruno at number two at all. All right. Who did you have at number one? Number one. Only guy that ever held the Missouri and Intercontinental titles at the same time. It was the year of Ken Patera. Wow. I, I don't have him listed, but I mean, so many guys had so many great years. Like You could definitely argue Patera for a top spot. I mean, you know, headlining Madison Square Garden three times, Intercontinental Champion, Missouri Champion. He had a great year. Match and, of the year. And those matches against Bruno at the end of the year were the headline at the mm-hmm. Spectrum because Backlund was over probably over in Japan for those two shows. That and, sounds about right. And, and then he takes on Harley Race once or twice in St. Louis. The, the guy had one hell of a year, and I, I was always a big Kempatera guy. Going back, I mean, I remember him in the WWF when I watched it for a little bit, but then I saw him on the uh, World's Strongest Man competition, 78, 79? 78, I want to say. 78. So when, when he came back in, in 80, I was like, oh, man, this guy's all, this is a real athlete right here. Oh, yeah. And he didn't disappoint. He could really work. And then through the magazines, I was reading, you know, some of the older stuff with him and John Studd being a team. Mm-hmm. And they held the Mid-Atlantic titles in together. Yeah. So I, I was all pumped up for Patera for that entire year. I remember Patera coming back, I want to say November or December 1979 uh, on WWF TV. And his first couple of appearances, he had his natural brown hair, which kind of flipped me out. And then he comes back, I want to say, you know, maybe a month into it, and he's bleach blonde again. And in 1980, he had the most sensational afro imaginable. The guy, he was like a white Oscar gamble with this crazy blonde fro. Patera, he was nuts. I love that guy. Yes. Looking back, I can justify to myself that how I always liked Patera back then. And so I, I don't feel guilty or anything for putting him at number one. If you look at it through the Mark size, that guy had one hell of a year. He, he really did. My number one, and it's funny, our number ones aren't in each other's top fives, but that's okay. We want different opinions. I had the junkyard dog and he had an amazing run in mid South wrestling. He, as we said, he helped build that territory alongside the Freebirds. I mean, it was, It was nothing until Bill Watts took over and Bill Watts made the decision to make Sylvester Ritter as the junkyard dog, his top attraction. Yep. All right. Well, let me see. At some point we will do 1990 seeing as that was 30 years ago. Hey, I want to congratulate Jamie and Tara. They are soon going to be grandparents. That is phenomenal. Congratulations, bud. Thank you again, John. And you have been fantastic on this show. I hope everyone has enjoyed listening to Jamie and I banter about 1980 wrestling awards and just things that went on around them. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer, for making this show sound as good as he makes it sound. Believe me, if we were going live, this wouldn't be as much fun. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. 